Welcome back to our slightly echoey podcast hosted by UNICEF's Office of Research here at Innocenti in Florence, Italy. We've just moved into a beautiful new office and are in the process of adjusting our acoustics. But in the meantime, I'm Angie and I'm delighted to be joined today by Perna Benali, our Chief of Programs and Co-Editor of the recently published Handbook of Adolescent Development Research and its Impact on Global Policy. There are 1.2 billion adolescents in the world today, 90% of whom are living in low and middle income countries. Young people represent an opportunity that can be cultivated through education and training, helping them move towards economic independence. However, critical evidence gaps are slowing development. Perna's book aims to close these gaps and speed up better policy making that is specifically tuned to this dynamic life stage. With over 50 contributors from a wide background of adolescent research areas, the book brings together cutting-edge research with a focus on policies and interventions. We're chatting with Perna today about adolescent development research to date and her personal highlights from the book. We'll also be discussing next steps. Now that we have more evidence, where do we go from here? Perna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Angie. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking handbook but before we delve into details about the book could you give us a brief background about your career as a researcher? Sure Um, thanks so um, I've been working for the last two decades um, at sort of the interface of research and policy Um, and my interest to working with young people in particular started um, during my time living in South Africa at the turn of the HIV epidemic and really seeing sort of um, how young people were affected in many ways. Um, very much the fear of a, of a disease that people knew very little about at that stage. Um, but they were very much also part of the response, and especially in prevention efforts. And this is where I really saw that adolescents were much more than victims, but also part of creating change. And, and since then, I've been following their lives. And, 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 um, and so this book, this handbook, came at a nice time uh, for me to, to look at uh, their lives and, 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 uh, and use research to inform policy to improve it. The book is co-edited with Jennifer Lansford of Duke University. How did the idea come about to create this book? So about two years ago, um, Jennifer Lansford and I noted a real gap in bringing adolescence um, research and evidence um, in policy and pro- to policy and program settings. Um, It was around the time the SDGs were just signed and practitioners were seeking evidence-based solutions. Um, We also noted that much of the transformative change that was called for in the SDGs really required a coherent response for young people. Um, So that was the start, a little bit of our journey, trying to pull together a a, a large and very uh, well-established and well-recognized a set of researchers working, um, experts working with young, with and on young people um, to uh, be part of this, uh, this volume. You've mentioned before that there have been huge gains in child well-being during the Millennium Development Goal era. However, progress for adolescents is lagging behind. Why do you think this is? This is a good question and I think I think we have to recognize that the world did make enormous strides uh, on child well-being during the MDG era. 
There were huge leaps um, in primary school enrollment, um, in child survival, um, and in health. And certainly those are not to be, um, in no way can we say that um, these were not incredibly important responses for young, for young children. Um, however, I think it's been well acknowledged that during that same period, an unfortunate legacy of the MDGs was a widening inequality um, in economic uh, outcomes, in health. Um, they became more pronounced over that period. Um, and we, we also know that adolescence is a time when inequalities become more entrenched. Um, take the example of gender inequality for, uh, for a moment. Um, if we look at uh, the burden of unpaid care work, so care work provided in the household, for example, for young girls, uh, a study, a recent study uh, done by Anachenti here in Malawi shows that by the time um, young girls are 12 or 13, um, this is significantly higher, up to five times higher than their male counterparts. Um, so um, I think, and, and, and this persists through their lives, so this difference persists through their lives. So um, gender inequality manifests during this period, um, and I think uh, this is in part a, a useful then uh, opportunity, a useful period of life in which to intervene to redress those inequalities. Um, and, uh, and, and we think, we really do think that adolescence provides not only a, a solid platform for a, a period to intervene for a successful transition to adulthood, but also to redress some of the gaps from, from early childhood, um, knowing that um, such inequalities uh, may have left some children further behind than others. So basically, while the Millennium Development Goals improved the situation for many children, uh, it also left behind many gaps and adolescence now presents an opportunity to close these gaps. Exactly. We talk about it in, in three ways. Uh, we talk about one, that there is a very unique period of life. This is a period of life where there, there isn't another period like it where you can make these investments that safeguard um, the best outcomes uh, for this group. Um, we also talk about it as a good investment for the future. So um, transitioning into adulthood, um, we know that we can intervene successfully in this period of dynamic change to secure positive outcomes for uh, adulthood and, and positive and safe and healthy transitions into adulthood. And we also know that um, uh, we can redress in some, in some cases some of the gaps from early childhood. An example there is around stunting, where we've seen recent um, recent research show that investments um, during this period can help uh, to reduce the gaps experienced from um, um, from uh, interventions that may have missed young children uh, earlier on. We know that research on adolescence comes mostly from high-income countries. But we also know that 90% of adolescents live in low and middle income countries. And um, so the applicability of this research that we have may be somewhat limited. What comparisons can be drawn, if any, between young people in high income countries and young people in low and middle income countries? And where do you think they differ the most? So I think these are really good questions about sort of the validity, the external validity of research and how how we assure um, that in fact uh, what we know is true, which is the bulk of resources for research tend to be focused in high income settings. Um, and yet we're trying to answer some very 
um, intractable problems, complex challenges in, in resource-constrained settings. Um, so I think a real challenge there for, uh, one, for the research community um, to, re- to, to, to evaluate, to assess how to, how to respond. Um, what can we say? I think there's been some examples where um, we have seen transferability work. Um, so a recent study published here at Innocenti on parenting programs has shown that some, some elements of parenting programs can reasonably transfer. Um, other work shows, for example, mental health interventions are less transferable, less successful in transferability. Um, and I think part of it comes down to the context. So this is sort of a catch-all in some sense, but I think it does really require one to look at context very closely to be able to understand um, whether or not interventions will work um, uh, in low-income settings uh, when they've been grown in high-income contexts. Um, I think the ability for the state and for society to provide uh, some of the enabling uh, environment uh, resources for young people all need to be part of a package. And I think um, this is also where the the context is quite different for young people living in resource-constrained settings, in low-income settings. Um, and then I also think some of the challenges are quite different. So we do need a different body of research, um, particularly if you think about social norms or roles and expectations and responsibilities for young people. These are very culturally um, specific. So I think um, for uh, research to really be effective in those settings, they do need to be um, anchored within the cultural communities in which they're working. I believe one of the chapters mentions that it's time to you know, turn this evidence into action and policy and, and develop programs based on this, on this evidence. Do you agree with this sentiment or do you think that there's a lot more research to be done in these countries? I think there's a lot that the handbook brings. It is a global volume, so it does have um, research uh, and features research from lots of different contexts, including some very difficult contexts to do research in, such as humanitarian settings. Um, so, I, so I do think it, it does add to the evidence base. Um, is it enough? No. I think you'll talk to any researcher, they'll all say it's never enough. So um, how much do we need to know? And there's always questions that we need to know, we need to answer better. I think some of the um, new challenges that are posed for young, for young people today, particularly around technology and the use of technology, some of the challenges, challenges that will face the world of work tomorrow, these are pressing questions for which we need more research and more understanding of how to intervene in adolescents' lives in positive ways. The book talks about adolescence in a positive way and it kind of frames young people as opportunities. How would you describe previous perceptions of adolescence and do you think this has had an impact on interventions at a local or a national level? So I think, I think historically adolescents haven't had um, a very uh, positive framing. Um, I think folks talk a lot about teenagers from sort of ni- 1904 when, when Hall started t- um, publishing work on adolescence. He talks about it as a period of storm and stress. Um, and I think we, um, as society, uh, have an impression that th- this is a period of volatile mix of hormones and uh, uncertainty and instability. Um, but I think we've also learned that along with that and along with the changes that come during that period, 
um, there are real opportunities to to um, to to look at development, look at the developmental nature of this period, um, and frame this in a positive way. Um, one of the one of the uh, chapters in the book makes a very clear case for not framing all risk taking as negative. So we think risk taking is an inherently negative thing, but in fact it's part of biology in some ways um, and part of our evolutionary um, of evolutionary cycles that one. Um, does take um, more risk at certain periods in adolescence as one comes out of the safety of your home and explores the wider environment uh, within which you live, the society, um, peers, uh, romantic relationships necessitates an element of risk. But I don't. But society could never evolve without that risk taking. So I think it's important to balance the the negative framing that we've seen because there are some real risks for 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 young people and i don't think that society should forget that um, but also to recognize some of these potential opportunities that they bring the definition of adolescence is that it occurs approximately between the ages of 10 and 20 years old and um, but young people at either end of the spectrum will obviously have very different needs risks and and challenges so how can policymakers and program officers address the needs of all adolescents simultaneously, or is this even possible? No, this is a great question, and I think you know people do often ask, well, you know, the period is quite diverse from the age of 10 to the age of 19 or 20. Um, how do we package this into one group? And actually the answer is we don't. I think... I think we do have to recognize that this is a diverse group um, and the needs and experiences of younger adolescents are very different from those of the older, uh, of the older um, end of that cohort. I think what is important to recognize for that group is that the period itself is marked by transitions and these transitions and the focus on transitions as an important part of addressing the needs of young people is, is, is where the focus should lie. And that is around the, the age of 10, roughly around the age of, of puberty, uh, that biologic transformation, and then the end of the period of adolescence when there's transitions into the world of work, transitions into uh, marriage, uh, employment, and other, and, and, and other ways in which we mark the end of that period. Um, so I think fo- the focus on transitions is probably, to my mind, a little bit more important than, than, the, than necessarily putting the whole group together, but recognizing not only the age, as you say, but also the gendered dimensions of it. So this period has very different gendered dimensions. Um, so I always talk about adolescence and gender together, in some sense, to be thought about together. So it's important to take into account both the physical and particularly the social developments that are happening in adolescents' lives around this time. Absolutely. I think that's part of what's unique about this period is the ability to interact with environment and, um, and, and that period of life you are, as an adolescent, so primed for social and emotional learning um, that, uh, that creates and recreates how culture and society persists, I think, has a, a, a very important place in our life course. Um, so absolutely, I think it is, uh, it is both the combination and the interactions of the biologic effect, the neurologic effect, as you're talking about, um, um, as well as the social dimensions that make it a uniquely interesting period of life. So now a little bit more about the book itself. 
It has 50 contributors, over 50 contributors from a diverse range of backgrounds. Which area do you think organisations need to focus on in particular to better secure the future of adolescents? So I think, I mean, maybe I could highlight two. One, one is around promoting um, policy coherent approaches in, in countries. I think this is something that the handbook has seen um, and, and research is presented in the book that um, demonstrates that in fact countries don't have coherent uh, national approaches to young people. Um, there's a, an abundance of risk-based approaches and less on the opportunities we see a large focus on the 15 and older, much less on the 10 to 14. Um, we see uh, different um, approaches for boys and for girls. Um, a very uh, clear example is looking at minimum ages, where we see discordance between um, minimum ages, for example, the age of marriage and the age of access to sexual and reproductive health technologies. Um, um, so I think being able to have a discussion uh, that allows a policy coherent approach to, to, to come out of uh, within national context would be a, a pressing first start, I think, uh, first, uh, first um, to begin. I think, so, so for me, uh, policy coherence would be one area where, um, where we could focus on. I think this would serve to strengthen outcomes for young people and look at um, uh, look at look at adolescents and look at young people in a more multi-dimensional, multi-sectoral way rather than um, the recipients of individual sectoral policies and sometimes not at all because they've mis- been missed out completely. Um, the second the second part I think that you know where could countries and organizations focus on is really to rebalance some of the discussion that's been happening, particularly um, driven from the global policy agenda. Um, to look at the balance between girls and boys and inequalities in gender. And I think the gender, as I was saying earlier, the gender inequality discussion and adolescence um, are, in, uh, are, are in, integral to be, had, to, to, to be had together. I think they, they reinf- they're mutually reinforcing and we do know that um, a lot of the progress for young people cannot really be made as effectively if we cannot address gender equalities and... and and, and work towards a gender transformative uh, approach for, for young people. So having, the, having those dialogues together um, and trying to look at gender more meaningfully in national policies that address adolescence would be uh, another step forward, I think. All the chapters in the book are definitely worth a read. But is there any chapter in particular that you think sheds a new light on adolescence in these low and middle income countries? The first, uh, first is a, a great uh, a chapter um, about teens in public spaces and natural landscapes by Sarah Burnell and colleagues. Um, and I think this is interesting in part because we don't, uh, we know that teens are getting out of their ho- homes, they're entering the public space, and yet many public spaces aren't designed with young, uh, with young adolescents and, and adolescents and young people in mind. So trying to sort of design public spaces to support adolescents' physical and psychosocial development um, can, can also help uh, foster their sense of civic life and civic engagement uh, and, and really be the champions for, uh, for uh, the natural environment that we aspire for them to be and which we know that they are so involved in. So I think um, really um, connecting the discussions around the physical space, public spaces, f- public life, and, um, 
uh, and the environment a critical part of 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 uh, of an of an un, um, unexplored uh, approach for young people today. Really, very little in terms of interventions and policies that address that uh, today. Absolutely, it seems that even in in high income countries, we don't consider this issue enough. Yeah, I mean, I remember having a, a conversation with uh, with a with a young with an adolescent who was explaining to me that in fact many public spaces that young people tend to hang out with they tend to see um, um, security rather than sort of the more uh, restricted assuming that there's going to be a situation of of um, of negative outcome whereas actually um, these kids were just skateboarding or something. <laughs> So that's great. There's another, perhaps another example that might also um, be, I think I took away from from the handbook, which I think is also uh, something we have uh, much less uh, in terms of approaches uh, in the program and, and, and policy space, which is the contribution of non-family adults to adolescent well-being. I think uh, notionally we've understood it in the U.S. You have this idea of a coach, sort of this, um, mentor who's not your family member but someone who helps guide you through um, the challenges of adolescence pushes you but uh, but um, but is a support uh, provides a support that uh, that sometimes your parents uh, that goes beyond what you can what your parents do provide and I think this is a really interesting example so uh, the work by um, Peter Scales and colleagues make the case for the importance of non-family adults and propose programming approaches to 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 see how uh, the contribution of non-family adults can improve adolescent well-being. UNICEF's latest strategic plan emphasizes this the crucial second decade of, of adolescence. So as we begin to realize the importance of this period in young people's lives and research is beginning to close this gap in our knowledge, what do you think the next steps are in order to convert these developments into uh, action? Certainly in the evidence space, we've talked a little bit about how um, we still have gaps in understanding the changing terrain and the changing environment for young people going forward. So the space for evidence is still very much need, very much a gap and very much still needed. Um, I think we need a better systematization of uh, evidence-based programming approaches. I think we have some ideas of where things are um, rigorously tested um, and where we know what can work. And then there are others where we know much less about what can work. And I think that's um, clearly um, clearly a space that needs to be filled. In, in, the, in the development of UNICEF's, um, UNICEF's approach, um, the launch of the Young People's Agenda, which is very much a flagship initiative from the executive director, um, it comes at a critical time. I think it's a, it's a really an important opportunity to galvanize outcomes uh, for the second decade, um, and and she has highlighted three transformational, um, three accelerators as as they're called. Um, the first one is really around secondary secondary schooling and secondary school age education, um, that more adolescents should be in formal secondary or non-formal alternative pathways that provide equitable and quality learning. Um, and this should include all adolescents, including those who are on the move or live in conflicts of situations of conflict, those with disabilities, um, girls and, and the poorest. 
The second theme, uh, the second accelerator, is really focusing on skills. Um, and young p- people particularly need uh, the opportunities to develop skills for learning. This is the, the period of, of life where learning is um, really the, the, the neurology, the, the neuro, neurobiological um, um, situation through which uh, young, uh, young adolescents um, uh, grow is, is really primed. They're primed for learning. Um, and so things like personal employ- personal empowerment, employability, active citizenship, these all are all things that um, skills development could really help to strengthen. Um, and this could include support for transitions to work, uh, as well as skills for a green economy or sustainability, those that promote leadership, resilience, and tolerance, for example. And then the last accelerator that the executive director has identified is, is, is empowerment, particularly for girls, um, really highlighting the fact that young people must be given the opportunity to civically and digitally engage, um, to voice their opinions and views on issues that affect them and their communities. We know that um, participation involves um, the process of also having someone he- hear you to be able to voice and also to be heard. Um, so really to, to um, realize what is written in the Convention on the Rights of a Child that we know um, is, is, is around participation to also be heard. There are so many barriers that are pertinent to adolescent girls in particular and their inabilities to really um, be fully empowered, including child marriage, early pregnancy, violence, exploitation. Um, so these are really a matter of urgency to address and, and really a, a priority um, in this uh, in in this third uh, accelerator, um, so I think there are lots of good. Um, there's a lot of good progress that is um, that is that is happening now. It's a really opportune global moment. The G7 presidency on gender equality is a great time to focus on um, transforming outcomes for young girls, um, and and. Um, so I think there are lots of opportunities at this moment that I think UNICEF is also very much involved in. The effort is a global effort. It will take lots of stakeholders, and we do need a coalition of the willing to come together and, and really um, help support young people. Um, and so I think UNICEF, uh, along with partners, is very much working towards that. You've been traveling a lot recently to launch and promote the book. Did you gain any insights from your conversations with people while you were away or have there been any important developments in the area of adolescence since the book was was completed? Yeah, so I mean it's interesting. There's always there's always new new evidence and new um interesting findings that uh, come to the fore. Perhaps the one that's um had a little bit of a discussion in the media but also uh in the academic community has been arguments for expanding the age of adolescence, which for for most of us we have been looking at between 10 and 20, so the second decade, but arguments more recently um, to extend that age to 25 and to have a more uh, inclusive definition of adolescence to 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 that to to, to up to 25. Um, and it's interesting. The rationale for that is interesting, suggesting that adolescents encompass elements of biologic growth uh, and major social role and transitions. And both of these have changed a lot in the past century. Um, as well as the scientific understanding of growth has lifted its endpoint uh, into, into the 20s. There's also been in parallel a delayed timing of role transitions. 
including completion of education or marriage or parenthood and lots of and a continued uh, shift in uh, in popular perceptions of when adulthood begins so as lifespan increases the transition period from childhood to adulthood now occupies a greater portion of time uh, the related greater portion of the life course than ever before so it's a very compelling um, compelling argument to to expand the definition to 25 that Susan Sawyer and her colleagues have put together um, and I think has um, has um, percolated into the discussions uh, particularly in the adolescent research community Perna, thank you so much for speaking with us today I'm really excited to see the results of the handbook and the young people's agenda so thank you Thanks, Andy. It's been great. If you want to get your hands on the Handbook of Adolescent Development and Research, it's available to buy now on Oxford University Press website. The link is in the description of this podcast. The book will also be available for free on the UNICEF Office of Research website in September. That's unicef-iorc.org. In the meantime, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter for daily updates on all our research areas.